Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The best little whorehouse in Texas is over. It's 75 miles until we get to heaven. And Miss Mona for years have been red hot lovers and real good friends. But trouble snowballed like an avalanche at the chick, chick, chicken ranch. And Melvin Thorpe, a reporter of sorts, a self-righteous crusading fanatic, got on TV like you wouldn't believe and pointed a finger right at it. Exposing Miss Mona, accusing the sheriff, then it rose to a roar from a whimper. It got all out of hand, a fit hit the fan when Thorpe stirred up everyone's temper. Chick, 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 chicken ranch has been recouped in the song and dance. And I know you wouldn't want to miss the chance to come to the chicken ranch. It's foot stomping, rug romping, sexy, good fun. Come on down and bring someone. There's good times and trouble and fiery romance at the 
best little Texas chicken ranch. So long, partner. Y'all come back now, you hear? I don't know how to feel after watching this movie. Okay. Do you share that experience? <laughs> Does it make you confused? I don't think so. Really? I don't because that think... sounded like a confused response. <laughs> well, no, it's just it's it, it was funny reading it from you, I guess. So. Yeah, <laughs> I I mean, I this movie gave me the chuckles. It was fine. Like I laughed. I I Burt Reynolds sang, and I I it was it was it was good. He did great. Um, the songs were uh, earwormy enough. Uh, in in many cases, um, it's just. Based on a true story, and from reading about it, it seems like they kind of got it right. Like, obviously, it's vaudevillized, right? It's made into a much sort of bigger uh, story, but it it sounds like they got it just about right in their interpretation of the real details. You know, we can talk about that. Um, and yet, I'm I'm left wondering how much should I have laughed, learned, felt about any of these characters? What is the message that they're trying to leave me with? And I end up it it ends, and I'm I'm just a little bit empty. Empty, eh? Yeah, I think empty is empty is the word. This is not a terrible movie. In my book, it is not a terrible. It's not a one star movie by uh, a long shot. It's a fine movie with fine people doing funny things. And it leaves me feeling a bit empty. So now you. That's interesting. I I don't think it leaves me feeling empty, but but it, it feels a little um, uh, it feels a little thin, I guess. Uh, you know, it's I mean. I don't know. It's the story's okay. It's kind of based on a truish story about uh, an actual um, brothel in Texas, the last one, and I guess therefore the best one. <laughs> <laughs> and it, uh, you know, it's it's just about kind of their their final conflict with the law, basically, and and getting shut down. I don't know. The story didn't seem that grand to me. It was it was fun. It was enter entertaining. Like you, the music um, wasn't stellar. There were a few songs that definitely kind of work better than others. And it's interesting because um, there's you know some Dolly Parton tunes in here, and those ones definitely stood out for me more than the other ones. Um, I I had a fun time with it, and I. You know, I don't know. I guess it's kind of a disappointing one to end our Colin Higgins series with because it just it didn't feel as much like a Colin Higgins film. Film it felt like something that he had come on board to work on. The the you know doing a story about a brothel madam and a sheriff who are having an affair and her girls and the town and all that. I can see why Colin Higgins would be interested in it. You know, he seems to be interested in stories about people who might be viewed as outsiders or just kind of, you know, just people who um, weren't necessarily in the forefront. And I, I can see why he might gravitate to it. But I don't know. I just, I had kind of a difficult time connecting much to the story other than just, I mean, I guess it works well, the fact that Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds are helming it because, just their natural charisma makes me kind of drawn in. It's just the story didn't really get me that excited. <laughs> An ironic turn of phrase. Um, I <laughs> think that it is an it, it is a, a strange story um, to to find. Um, it it's a strange story and a strange presentation for a, to to be. A, a musical comedy comedy film. I uh, I think that is something that I I struggle with. The story is is obviously as you said, it's about the whorehouse. It is about uh, the decline of the whorehouse. It is about media, and and that as it turns out is is a story that I'm very interested in. Um, it, it Dom DeLuise plays the the uh, uh, crusading uh, media do gooder. He works for the local television station. He wants to take his segment national, and so he is uh, going about and trying to uh, you know fight or organized crime and he believes that there's millions of dollars being taken in and lots of uh horrible things going on in this uh whorehouse it's a whole lot of whole lot of sin and terrible things and he has a song and dance show about it and everybody's excited and once the truth is out 
um, that that does in the the um, chicken ranch. Uh, but but does in the chicken ranch they they normalize i think that's what i'm trying to put my head around they normalize behavior that culturally has been uh heavily um quashed in the last couple of decades right and so going back in time to watch this movie where everybody politicians law enforcement uh the community around it has so embraced this behavior that has and and this place that has since been absolutely erased from so many communities across the country uh i think is and i should say erased from the public eye of of so many places across the country <laughs> is the thing that that i think i i find sort of hard to wrap my head around like how much do do i embrace it and let me say i don't i personally don't like i don't care i don't have a problem with with anything portrayed in the movie and people like there's there is sex business in the world and i don't care like it's fine that you know uh it, it, i'm i'm not making any sort of judgment at all it's just a puzzling uh experience to watch this movie celebrate and watch these people celebrate something that has that and it feels like it's this is a film that was on the wrong side of cultural history and that's that makes it an artifact yeah it's it's an interesting one in the fact that i mean even at the time i mean uh, you know uh, this is kind of an odd thing but even the title of this film yeah. which was based on a broadway play the best little whorehouse in texas uh-huh. was just the word whorehouse was so obscene for some states that you couldn't actually have the title written that way. Um, When the film came out in 1982, they had to change it in some places to, in all their advertising, to the best little cat house in Texas because it was offensive. And so it's interesting because it is tackling, you know, prostitution and brothels in a way that it's making it very kind of okay and casual and we're right there in it with them mm-hmm. and uh per they're they're pers- uh, personalizing it making us feel very warm and it helps that you know it's it i don't i wouldn't say that this is probably where it all started but the whole hooker with a heart of gold thing mm-hmm. very much works here because i mean dolly parton as the madam of this brothel uh is just the sweetest little thing and <laughs> you just kind of mm-hmm. love her you love her relationship with the sheriff. Like, everything about it is just cute and adorable. And she's just, you know, she runs this place like a sorority mom would run her sorority. She has her little rules, and you have to follow her rules, and it's very sweet. But when it gets right down to it, there's just naked women and naked men running around everywhere. Mm-hmm. And when the um, when the media uh, guy breaks in, Dom DeLuise, as uh, Melvin P. Thorpe, when he breaks in and sneaks in, I should say, with uh, his crew, when the <laughs> the the sanctioned bringing of the uh, University of Texas football team, or was it them or was it the Aggies? The, it Aggies. the Aggies, yeah, yeah, because they Br- whoop and holler a lot. That's right, yeah. <laughs> bringing the <laughs> like sanctioned by. By the politician. The it was yeah, there, the politician, wasn't it? Like the right, senator, the senator who says, if you win the game, I'm going to take you to the chicken right. ranch, the whole team. Yeah, the, he buses them in to go, you know, and fool around and, and have sex with all the prostitutes. And it's like, wow, okay. Texas in, in the 80s, I guess, or 70s, yeah. whenever this was uh, taking place. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I guess it was an interesting time. But, yeah, I can see it, it coming and being something that's pretty kind of bumping heads with the whole idea of on the one hand you can't even say the word whorehouse in the advertising and then on the other hand it's a film that's making these prostitutes you know very uh very friendly and they are your protagonists and uh, but it's and it's all like you know this this love of prostitution and um burt reynolds has the line I think later in the film, I think it's him, uh, where he's talking about legislation and he's like, you can't legislate morality. And I'm like, okay, so is turns out you can. (laughs) Well, I'm like, is this a message movie? Are they trying to 
Are they trying to spin it? Like, I, I couldn't quite figure out, like, what they were trying to do with it, you know? And I know it's based on a real situation, but still, it's like, what what were they trying to do with it? And I guess that was the problem, because it sounds like the best little whorehouse in Texas, it sounds like it's going to be kind of a, almost like a, uh, you know, kind of an 80s sex comedy. And there's a little bit of that in there, but it doesn't necessarily feel completely like that's what it is. And I, yeah. I don't know. It's it's a, not sure, I guess. I absolutely agree. And I, and I also would I, I'll lean in on the fact that this movie has a message. I mean, this movie has a message on on, uh, you know, it asks the question, what is morality? Everything was fine. And this business was running well. And it was it was a large contributor to community development projects. And it was well respected. And everybody got their needs met. All of their needs were met. And they make a great case of that in the movie. Like they try to really make a case for that in the movie, uh, even to the point that, um, you know, they they cover the uh, other wives in the movie whose husbands go visit the chicken ranch and the wives are painting this rosy picture of thank God I have a break from my husbands, you know, who at least give me a night off from all the sex they must be having. Right. Like it is. <laughs> It is a very strange thing to to uh, kind of get to figure out whose side you're on. But the movie's making the case that this was a a gem of Lagrange, and by the nature of this of the morality police coming in and broadcasting what was going on, they ruined it for the case uh, for the cause of moral policing and they made things worse they 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 you know jobs were lost um the economy was impacted the projects that used to be funded thanks to this place are now not funded thanks to this place and uh and and you know they made the the world is worse for this sort of of policing and uh, that that to me that's the message i certainly got uh, out of this movie it was it's very much kind of a i would say is it a uh, as a sort of a libertarian bent <laughs> i guess <laughs> right just it, stay out of the business of the business and um but but it's also very much a story about um uh, about fear right about the fear of being found out about the fear and uncertainty that comes with am i doing the right thing is this the right thing do i have and, and once people are asked the question that they've never been asked before um and are forced to face it they they come up with a with a strange you know conflict they come up with a sense of of conflict and and i, I think we see that and the, the film I, I think does a a fair job of painting that picture too um, well uh and of labels too. I mean, that's yeah. that's the whole issue that Burt Reynolds' character has uh, as sheriff. Uh, you know, he he really is enjoying his relationship that he has with Mona, but he is afraid to commit. He's afraid to say he loves her because she is a prostitute, mm-hmm. and he can't get past that in his mind. And so he, you know, for, I can't remember how many years, like 12 years or whatever, they've just basically been having this secret affair, but that's all he really kind of wants out of it. And it's, you know, through the course of the film, things change, obviously. But it's, I I don't know. I think that that's another element and the whole idea of fear. And just well, like and to your point, Andy, that scene where they have their fight and it ends with the the label and at least I'm not a whore. Right. The, yeah. Right. The, right. the first time he says that word in rage, the whole tone of the movie changes. And I think that's a that's a real strength of the movie. They use that pivot and and, uh, you know, to uh, the, the credit of the script, uh, that pivot is very powerful. And to to that point, it really does feel like the sort of project that Colin Higgins would gravitate to yeah. because he did like these stories about outsiders and people who didn't necessarily fit um, and, or were trying to fit and, and you know, trying to get their own voice heard. And so I can really see why he would be drawn to a story like this as something that uh, he would jump onto uh, after or at this point in his career. Um so yeah, it's it's interesting. I think that there are a lot of interesting things with it. And I, you know, I've never seen the musical. I don't know how much adaptation there was. I know there was it sounds like from what I've read that there was some uh shifting around to make it a little more of a vehicle for uh for Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. 
that uh, largely was it was the same, but with their relationship. Because I guess in the original play, they had an affair 15 years before all the, the stuff in the play happens. And uh, that was it for their relationship. And they wanted to kind of have a bigger relationship between um, Parton and Reynolds in the film. And so they kind of boosted that up had the had the affair continuing and obviously that changes kind of a lot of other elements throughout the throughout the end with all the the marriage proposal at the end and her singing to him all that stuff well then at least we should talk a little bit more about Bert and Dolly and and to do that can I can I open the bidding with um, a little bit from a little ditty from Roger Ebert's review <laughs> you know oh, how much I, I love I love, this. I love when you jump into Ebert's reviews do you love it <laughs> I got so Especially excited about, about his Dolly review Parton. last time, and uh, and and so I immediately went to his uh, to his review this time, and uh, he said he says this: If I were asked what image dominates the best little whorehouse in Texas, the honest answer would have to be Dolly Parton's plunging neckline. I'm not trying to be cute. The awesome swell of her wondrous bosom dominates every scene Dolly appears in, and that includes just about every scene in the movie. W.C. Fields, the old scene stealer, rebelled against appearing on screen with an animal, a child, or a plunging neckline on the not unreasonable grounds that audiences would not be looking at him. Fields could have appeared incognito in Whorehouse, as, indeed, Burt Reynolds occasionally does. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the puzzling thing about the part in Decolletage is that so little is made of so much. Roger, Roger, Roger. Wow, Roger. Oh, God, the Chicago Sun-Times getting steamy up in here. Uh, I, 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 what he is getting at, though, is I think an interesting, a little bit later in the, in, in the review, he gets at a point that I, I want to bring up with you, which is that, uh, it's all about the chemistry that because of all this sexiness, right, that, uh, you would think that there would be chemistry between Parton and Reynolds. And, uh, you know, Ebert says, these are two of my favorite movie sex symbols because they're always so full of good cheer, but that isn't the case here. They're great looking. They smile a lot. They've been provided with good dialogue, but somehow they seem a little bored with each other. Uh, did you get that sense that they're a little bored with each other? Are you on Team Roger? I'm not. I thought it was cute. And like their whole relationship, I really enjoyed the whole sneaking around sequence. I thought that was pretty mm-hmm. adorable. And I just, I kind of felt like they had this feel to their relationship, like they knew each other well. They'd been around each other for, you know, 12 years. And it, I don't know, it just felt like a lived in relationship to me. I, I thought it was very sweet, especially like the, the, the whole underwear bit. I just, everything was cute. I, oh, talk about how much you love the underwear bit. It was great. <laughs> Oh, what are you going to say about it? Well, I'm going to ask you, do you wear underwear with snaps in those places? Of course I do. (laughs) That's all I'm wearing right now. (laughs) Outstanding. Uh, I thought that was super cute, and and I, I I actually really like the way you put it that the the relationship was lived in. I agree with that, um, and and it it felt it felt very natural uh, to me. And um, you know, I agree with him. These these were uh, big, you know, sex symbol stars in this this you know in the eighties, and I I think that they sell uh, a relationship. Um, outside of the class of just sex symbol relationships, it it actually feels uh, weighty. It feels natural. It feels like somebody who knows what it's like to have been in a relationship for a long time, and it adds a little bit of volume to the discussion of um, you know their relationship falling apart. Like there's weight to it. It's it is a serious thing, even though they, it's been a secret relationship for twelve years. It still feels severe. And and I appreciated that. Yeah, it made it work really nicely. And I think Dolly was smart. Uh, I mean, she would kind of jokingly say in interviews about it, about how there were more scenes between her and the sheriff or her character and the sheriff than there had been in the Broadway show. And and she would just say, you know, would you, you know, you know, would you waste your money to go see this movie if you're not seeing me and Bert kiss? 
And, uh, you know, and, and I think that that, you know, is a just kind of a joking way to say, you know, create that relationship here and, and mm-hmm. make that relationship because that helps you care about these characters. And when you're dealing with a story w- about these prostitutes and, and uh, this madam, it helps if they are, if they, if there's an element like this, because she's the only one, the rest of them just feel very much like prostitutes. You don't see them dealing with anything else in real life. And so you have that connection with her to the realities of life that just makes it feel very human. Right. As a representative yes, of right. uh, all of these others. Now, there were uh-huh. rumors uh, at the time that she and, and Reynolds were having an affair. But I think it was always just kind of unsubstantiated rumors. Um, it was, a, But it was a difficult project for Dolly. I don't know what was going on with her, but she was having a bunch of medical issues. She was having a bunch of internal bleeding and just, uh, it was a very painful process to do this movie. And uh, I think that she had to, um, yeah, she, she had said, you know, making this was just horrible uh, because of all of that, you know, it was just, it was a very, mm-hmm. very difficult film to deal with. This was at a, a time in her life when I don't know the exact period, but, you know, she was dealing with alcohol abuse and, and overeating and stuff like that and a lot of issues in her life. And, and I think some of that was coming out around this time. And considering some of the really small outfits that she wore, mm-hmm. I can imagine that dealing with, you know, medical issues and stuff could make it very difficult. Uh, I, I think she pulls it off and she pulls it off with that same sort of chemistry that I think we had in nine to five. She's just such a natural at handling the screen and uh, she has a, a fantastic confidence. And um, uh, so it, it was easy to watch her in this role at at times, I, I sort of veer in and out between, like, experiencing Dolly Parton sort of as a tour guide of the movie, like she's leading me through it rather than performing in it or experiencing mm. it. But I, I'm really okay. <laughs> I'm really okay <laughs> with all that because I like her so darn much. She is such an easy person to like in in yeah. projects that she's doing. You know, she's just yeah. so... Uh, friendly and open and honest and just welcoming. And that's, that's, I think, what people love about her is she just feels that way if, with everybody. And you start watching it and you're like, oh, I'm in love with you too. It's easy. But my bigger problem as somebody who didn't, I, I didn't really grow up with this movie. I'd seen it before, but I, I grew up with it. It didn't grow up with it. I grew up with a different Burt Reynolds movie, and that is, of course, Smoking the Bandit. And so watching Burt Reynolds in this movie, I can't help but feeling that all he's doing is parading around and cheating on Sally Field. And that's really hard to watch, man. Like, that was an important relationship. But Bird did great, too. Uh, I, I think he, he's a it's it's funny seeing him as sort of a secondary character um, to to her. But um, especially in the first part of the movie, right, he doesn't get serious stride until a little bit later in the film. But um uh, it, it was, I think he's, he is a great sheriff. I don't know much about Burt Reynolds on set and some of the issues that he had and stuff. Uh, I, I don't know much about, like, did he, was he dealing with drug issues at the time? Do you know? Are you familiar with I anything? I feel like I, my experience with uh, Burt Reynolds was, wasn't he always dealing with drug issues? Something, yeah. Like, well, yeah, there, mean, were, his, there were, there were, I guess, a lot of fights and uh, firings and things. And it just, yeah. there were a lot of issues on the project. And so I guess he had moods, sulks, tantrums. That's what I was reading about. So, but, but none of it comes through on screen. And I think that's what's important is that the performance just really, I think it, it feels very natural. He feels great as a sheriff, whether he's, you know, playing kind of a the scoundrel type of characters opposite the law that he has in the past or playing somebody who is the law. I just think he feels very natural in the role. Okay. And then we have Dom DeLuise. Uh, totally as, uh, yeah, right. Um, as uh, Marvin, uh, what was his name? Marvin Zindler? No, Melvin that. P. Uh, Thorpe. Melvin, yes, Melvin P. Thorpe. Now, our introduction to Melvin is, I I think it is a great introduction to a movie villain. <laughs> I feel like our meeting between Burt Reynolds and Deloise is quintessential Deloise, and I laugh 
it's it's possibly some of the best laugh that you get from me in this movie. It's brilliant because he's getting into character. You know, he's in his uh, his dressing room, and which is brilliant because when you see Reynolds come into it, it is on a the door is on a wall that is a a wall sized photo of Melvin shaking hands with the governor, <laughs> which is great. So when you walk through the door and you stand there, it's like you're standing there right next to this giant Melvin. And it's really funny. <laughs> and then you're watching this whole scene as they have this conversation. And and Melvin is putting on, uh, I guess, the, you know, kind of the 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 girdle sort of thing kind of he's got yeah he's got a girdle and um and getting himself all dressed for his show and and basically kind of twisting the whole conversation to be you know in his favor not the sheriff's and it was just it was a fantastic character that i was honestly was just not expecting uh from dom deloise because it just was such a very specific character and in my memory dom deloise was always so much more of the guy who played himself playing a role you know um and here he is just like so completely this character and i mm-hmm. loved it i just loved watching him uh just everything that he did was just really uh, um twisted and and really kind of horrifying in all of the best ways because of what he represents as a uh, media. Uh, what would you call him? An expose reporter? Basically. Well, yeah, yeah, that's I, I think that's uh, I think that's a fine way to characterize him. And the the fact that they they do such an able job of. Uh, sort of disarming him for us in the first scene uh, by showing us all of the affectation and all of the the like the the uh, fraud behind the the scene right when he shows up and he's in his underwear and we get to see him put together this character that he portrays on television by putting the girdle on and putting the shirt and the scarf and then putting the sock in his underwear to make him look more impressive on set and uh like we already know that he is void of substance and yet then they turn around and give him teeth by pointing a character at or a camera at him and i think that is a very powerful pivot in the film and i think it's even better the way he sets up uh, uh sheriff dodd uh by putting him in the sponsor booth which is actually <laughs> just a, a giant fishbowl to put uh put people in when the the show actually goes live and use him uh that way it is just diabolical and uh prescient right the the movie was shot in 72 and 82. or in 82 um uh, and i think it was it was, you know, how 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 well did he do uh, actually, you know, showing us where we'd end up? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it really is perfect. The way using that, the media as a weapon, really, it's 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 very brilliantly done, and that's what I found interesting is that you know this whole thing was based on a real story there with this real brothel in Texas with a real sheriff and a madam who had apparently had an affair and with this character, like there was this news character. And I don't know if you saw any of the behind the scenes stuff where they actually showed these people, but he's, I mean, aside from having a totally different color hairstyle or color hair, that style was very similar. It was just like, you know, bleach white, like this, this white wig as opposed to a dark Mm -hmm. wig. And that was like, wow. Okay. I didn't know that they were, uh, that this was a real thing, but holy cow. And he screams the same way at the camera, right? Right. When you look at that old footage and, uh, he's very serious and, and keep in mind that that was, um, you know, at, an 19 the story was from the the 70s from like 10 years earlier when this was all going on and so um you know this all this tv stuff was uh, you know it was it was already being um sort of weaponized um a decade earlier right yeah it was uh what was his name do you have it uh, handy the real the real guy uh yeah marvin zindler of zindler right yeah yeah and uh, yeah the it was uh Madam Edna Milton and Sheriff Jim Flournoy were all the people. So, and then of course the governor, you know, who uh, Charles Durning 
was uh, oh, Charles perfect. Durning and the sidestep. Oh, Holy God. cow, the brilliant, the brilliant sidestepping uh, politician. I mean, it couldn't have gotten any better than that. Just the way that that character was portrayed, I was just like, that was genius. Just sheer genius. The way that everything that he did was just completely to uh, to talk in circles and mislead everybody. It was a little on the nose with all the all the reporters always going, well, what did he say? Did he say anything? That was a little much, but his performance was just so spot on perfect. I had just an absolute delight until, of course, he gets the, the polls with the results or, as to yeah. how we should make his decision. I, I think it was written so well. It was such a smart part and the dialogue was just crafty. So clever the way he was, he would, he would, you know, talk his way out of questions and um, uh, thrown at him by reporters or anybody else. And then capping it off with that fantastic song and dance number as he is, you know, sliding in and out behind columns. And I mean, it's just full <laughs> of fantastic camera trickery and editing trickery and um, and and some able uh, soft shoe from uh, uh, from the character, too. I thought it was just uh, it, it was really great. It was another musical high point. Absolutely. It's funny to me, though, that and, and check me on this. I for me, the highest uh, the, the movie gets its highest marks when we're not talking about the whorehouse itself. I found the opening uh, number uh, was fine, like ain't nothing going on. Right. Nothing, nothing dirty going on, which was a, a, a fine enough song. A sneaking around was OK. It felt a little bit childish uh, to me. Yeah. Um, but man, once we get into the political stuff, I am. I, I was right there. I think the media stuff, the once we get into the 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 hardcore satire of Melvin's or, or Deloise's, um, you know, song with the, the the dancing chorus behind him, uh, I was I was really enchanted. Yeah, that was that was just good stuff. I really enjoyed that too. Now we have left one actor out that we haven't talked about uh, yet. I know, I know, uh, I know, and this yeah. is exciting because uh, Jim Neighbors. Oh, Jim Neighbors, Good Andy, old Gomer Pyle. Uh, <laughs> would you? I mean, did your heart just explode when he came on screen? It did. I was like, a Gomer. Uh, I haven't Gomer. seen him in so long, and it was just a, a big old delightful surprise to see him pop up, and in an interesting role because he is kind of our narrator, right? And it's it's very much that breaking the fourth wall, uh, you know, right to the camera talking to us, the audience, and relaying this story. It was kind of an interesting thing I wasn't really expecting. I'm not sure it matters so much that he's giving us that that, that sense of perspective and the voiceover and uh, all of that because he's so charming. And uh, I think it plays well for the fable narrative that they're telling us, right? That this is a, this is, you know, this is an exaggerated story of what happened to this. Uh, and, and this was our experience. And, and I was there. Um, be, but that voice, that iconic presentation and, was uh, just so, uh, such a welcome uh, uh, way for me to revisit a, a lot of my history, uh, television history with him. And so it was, it was really sweet and nostalgic. Yeah. I wonder what it was like watching this real time. Like, I mean, in, in 1983, he was, um, you know, already, um, kind of that icon, um, and, yeah, he definitely so, wasn't the kind of the young faced uh, no. Gomer that that we had on like Andy Griffith or something like that. No, right. We already we we already knew him, and there wasn't much that came after this, right? Some television. Uh, he he did return to his character for a TV movie of Return to Mayberry. He did uh, Private Homer Lyle on Cannibal Run, <laughs> Cannonball Run. Cannibal Run. <laughs> that would be an awesome movie. Uh, so race across the country, uh, eating everybody. Exactly right. That's great. Yeah, uh, he was so, buddies. Well, he was buddies with Burt Reynolds, and so he ended up yeah. in this Stroker Ace and Cannibal Run with him. Yeah. Uh, so it was fun to see him, and I actually think he makes uh, obviously he makes a natural deputy. Um, it's just too easy for him. So, did you uh, know this really that that he sang for over forty years? Uh, he sang back home again in Indiana before the start of the Indianapolis Five Hundred every year. Yes, uh, isn't that interesting uh, yeah. on his background that his voice is incredible and his uh, his opera talents uh, too are extensive and uh, it is. 
it's it's you know it's funny to think of him if you only know him as Gomer. Uh, golly, he's got yeah, some right. pipes. Huh. So interesting. Uh, so yeah. Hey, one little thing I forgot to mention about um, Charles Durning that I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, Burt Reynolds also knew him, and and Reynolds actually is the one who suggested to Colin Higgins that they cast Charles Durning. Because I guess uh, the studio was looking at Mickey Rooney to play the role. And Burt Reynolds, uh, this was a quote that he said, Colin is very smart, very commercial. They wanted Mickey Rooney, so I manipulated him a little. I told Colin, Mickey Rooney is a wonderful actor, but everyone knows that. You won't get any credit. Charles Durning can sing and dance, and no one knows it. So you'll get all the credit. Excellent. I don't know how much truth there is in that, but it's a great little anecdote. You know, it sounds so Reynolds. It does. That's so Reynolds. (laughs) That's so smoky. That's what that is. Smoky. (laughs) So now um, uh, I have a big question. There's a big question here with this film. Okay. All right. Who does it better, Dolly or Whitney? Oh, Whitney. Come on. (laughs) And, you know, I don't feel bad about that because, all right, so we're talking about I Will Always Love You, Will Always Love You. So that was a a song that she wrote, not for the movie, but we get a two stanza version of it in the movie, and then it was re-released. Yeah, she um, she wrote it like 10 years before, so. Yeah. And so this is a song. It was always hers. And um, so they they dropped it in the movie, and it became another huge, huge hit for her in 1982. Right. And it's great. I mean, you listen to her version of it, it's great. And then Dolly did it for the bodyguard. Whitney, and, Whitney. I mean, not Dolly. Whitney. Whitney did it for the bodyguard. And she just blows the doors off this song. And then you watch an interview with Dolly and say, you know, do you feel bad that Whitney just like kind of took your song? And Dolly said, the checks keep coming in. I am <laughs> thrilled with how that went. So, you know, I'm OK with it, too. Like, just that's great. As long as Dolly gets paid, Whitney has has become the de facto standard uh, for this song. She really has. It's, uh, I mean, it's so good, Whitney's version. And I I think it was a little bit of a change because Dolly's definitely has a little bit more of the country twang to it. And that feels much more defined. Whereas Whitney's version feels like so much more expansive and it really just becomes just a love ballad. And I think uh, it pulls it out of that kind of the country twang and it gives it just a bigger home. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And and I actually, I mean, I like both versions. I'm I don't listen to the country version. Yeah. Right. Uh, just not my not my style. But it was uh, a very sweet addition here. I yeah. thought you know that and sneaking around were were Dolly's songs, and I, I liked the the way that it fit at that point in the film when she sings it to um, Bert at the end. It was great. Yeah, I thought so too. It was very touching. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the uh, the Chicken Ranch House? The 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 house has had its own sort of post-film experience. The house was actually deconstructed. It was moved to the Universal lot. Uh, it was in uh, the, it was the Firefly residence in House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, it was actually, this is the the one I find most interesting. The exterior of the chicken ranch was erected on the Universal lot where the Bates house from Psycho originally stood. The Bates house was moved to a permanent location uh, in 1983 when they were shooting Psycho 2, and the set is still up in the Universal lot, and uh, it was actually used in The Ghost Whisperer. Huh. Uh, so the the Chicken Ranch, best little whorehouse in Texas, is still floating around Universal. Look at that. Uh, we got a little bit more on getting it made? Yeah, I mean, obviously we said this was based on a Broadway musical, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, by Carol Hall, Larry L. King, and Peter Masterson, that uh, opened in 1978 and uh, was a success. And uh, I think Tommy Toon and Peter Masterson directed the show there. And, you know, it was it was received it was received well, and they wanted to make it into a movie, of course. And the process of that was um, that they they had the the um, the guys who wrote the book King and Masterson were going to write the script, and then Masterson and and Tommy Toon, who directed the show, were going to direct the movie together. They wanted to cast Shirley MacLaine, Diane Cannon, Carrie uh, Glenn, and Jill Clayburgh as the stars of the film, but the studio said they well, they weren't really a, a big enough draw. 
And so Dolly Parton um, was cast, and then King wanted Willie Nelson to come on, but which would be an interesting pairing. But Burt Reynolds is the name, and that's who they got. Now, they Burt Reynolds did want to do some singing, and so they did some of the changes around him. And, and as I said, they already are they they changed some of the um, the structure of it to help their relation or to keep their relationship going. Now. The studio was pretty nervous about first-time directors uh, doing this, and so they actually got rid of Masterson Tune, and that's when Colin Higgins was brought on to work on the script and direct the film. And uh, and it's kind of I don't know it's it's interesting because I think that the script um, does feel a little Higgins-ish just because of the nature of the characters being kind of outsiders. But it doesn't feel like uh, a huge Higgins film. Now, he had been, actually, he had been working on a project since before 9 to 5. It was a comedy thriller, kind of in the lines of the Hitchcockian ones he did before. Uh, that was called The Man Who Lost Tuesday. And, uh, but then he did 9 to 5. That was such a hit that they, you know, brought him in to do The Best Little Whorehouse. And uh, then he was supposed to actually do The Man Who Lost Tuesday after that, but the studio felt the budget was too high. They passed on it. And just to kind of finish out Colin's story before uh, I jump back into the production, um, he ended up, um, because that project was dumped, he got onto a different project that uh, that kind of went nowhere. Then he was working on a script that was uh, called Washington Girls that was supposed to be a a project that was going to reunite Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton. Um, but that, uh, he was just still in the writing stages there. And then he did a TV movie called Out on Limb, and that was his last project. Um, he did die of an AIDS-related illness. Uh, he was openly gay. And uh, in 1988, uh, that's when he, he passed. But um, RKO Pictures, I don't know if you noticed, but at the very beginning, we had the RKO Pictures credit as one of the Isn't production that fascinating. companies. And I'm like, RKO Pictures, they were done like in the 50s, weren't they? Yeah. Well, sure enough, they they did uh, dissolve in 1957, I think. But RKO General, which was their corporate heir, did revive the studio um, in the 80s, in 1981. And uh, they kind of ran it. And I guess it's actually even still going now, which I didn't even realize that that wow. it was still out there. But they um, started in the early 80s, and they only did a few films. They did uh, Carbon Copy in 1981, which is the first project that they did. They did this one. They did The Border and Cat People. And uh, let's see, a Meryl Streep thing. Um, I guess they did a variety now that I look at it. So, I think um, the only one I've seen on that list so far is Cat People. I don't uh, remember it fondly. Meryl Streep film, Plenty. They did Half Moon Street, Hamburger Hill. Oh, no, I saw that too. Yeah, and it's just, it's interesting because it sounds like they kind of kept spinning things off and stuff. And what I didn't know, I don't remember, I guess, is that they were involved. Do you remember the Mighty Joe Young remake in like 98? Yeah. Because they were involved in that too. Huh. We got an RKO. Yeah. I didn't know that uh, it was a company still doing stuff. Like 2015, the flop barely lethal. They were involved in that. Not great. Apparently not. Not I a great. Not a great film. It was fully lethal. Apparently. Hey, you know, there's a thing we skipped. You realize? What was Since that? Since you brought up Colin Higgins, we already it's, talked uh, about Snap on Underwear. What else is there? You did. What else is there it's to talk co- about? It, it's Colin's trope corner, Andy. Mm. Da da da. Colin's trope corner. Uh, did you notice any of the Colin Higgins tropes in this movie? I don't feel like I noticed many, if any. I, you know, there probably was one involving, um, you know, uh, kind of cocky sheriffs doing something stupid to kind of scare people away. Yeah, because you know, you know, we. I don't know if you count this as a trope in this movie. I didn't see any real life character that that actually you know supported this. Maybe there was, but we do have Teresa Merritt as uh, Jewel, and that is the uh, the the black housekeeper. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Which I, I don't know how how sort of tropey that is, but she's the y'all come back now, uh, and 
uh, you know, all the all the boys come running again. And so uh, there was a little bit of that might qualify. Yeah. Um, and we had so much as just kind of a, yeah. a state on or a statement on, you know, the way that unfortunately the South was. Do we is there a trope in the the rescuing at the end when he goes in, he says, where is she? And then he takes the luggage and takes it out of the car and puts it into his truck. Uh, that felt a little tropey to me. Oh, he's coming to the rescue. The sheriff's coming to rescue. The it was the pretty woman kind of a rescue. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a little be, something there. It could there. be tropey. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. I, I'm I'm with you. I didn't I didn't see much that jumped out at me as a strong, easy trope. Like there are definitely the the romance tropes, the romance movie stuff. Um. But, you know, but it didn't scream at me like the other movies. Have. No. And I think some of that is this was based on other material. I mean, because yeah. even though the previous film, Nine to Five, you know, he came in as a, a second writer after somebody else had already written written it. Right. It was an original script. This was based on uh, based on another project, not just another project, but a musical. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of songs already structured into the film or the story to kind of help tell it and tell meet the characters and everything. And, uh, it just, it was, it was fully kind of developed already. So I, I think mm-hmm. that it's a little more difficult to actually write. And so the writing elements of it were really probably just kind of building the world a little more to take it just off the stage. I, I didn't realize this, but apparently filming in, Austin was not a thing at the time. Like uh, the city, it was, I don't know if they were off limits or what, but they didn't have productions there. This was, I guess, the first film that uh, was allowed to film in Austin. Nice going, Austin. Good choice. Um, Other than that, uh, let's see, I already gave my little tidbit, so I guess that's it. I don't think I have anything else for this one. All right. Well, maybe we should talk about how it did reward season. This was not a big award movie. Maybe uh, that's not much of a surprise, but there were a few uh, things of note. Uh, There were a total of three nominations at the Academy Awards. Charles Durning did get a nomination for Best Supporting Actor, but he did lose to Louis Gossett Jr. in An Officer and a Gentleman. And over at the Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Motion Picture Comedy or Musical, lost to Tootsie. And the Best best Actress Comedy or Musical, Dolly Parton, was nominated, but lost to Julie Andrews in Victor Victoria. I haven't seen Victor Victoria, but I would say the other two um, were fair losses. I would agree. And thus, how did it do at the box office? Is it going to surprise me? Well, for Collins' final film, he again doubled his budget and then some, getting $20.5 million to start, ending up with a $35 million uh, for the final budget, which is about $92.7 million in today's dollars. The movie opened July 23rd, 1982, opposite The Challenge. I haven't even heard of that one. The World According to Garp and Zapped. I watched that probably way too many times when I was young. Way too many times, yeah. <laughs> This film opened in the number one spot, which was big news at the time, because this is the film that knocked E.T. out of the number one spot, where it had been for six straight weeks. And I'm sure we talked about that in our E.T. episode. Of course, E.T. would take the number one spot back for a few more weeks after this, but that just goes to show that people were looking for a summer alternative to The Little Alien and found it with Reynolds and Parton. This movie went on to become the ninth highest grossing film of the year, earning $69.7 million at the box office, which is about... $184.7 $184.7 million in today's dollars. Not quite the success that Higgins' previous two films were, but it still ended up a success with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $807,000. Isn't it interesting that a sweet Spielberg family film about a little alien finding his place in the universe mm-hmm. loses to a movie about a whorehouse? Way to go, America. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, so how do we wrap up? this experience with Colin Higgins. Uh, this was a little bit experimental because it's putting together a bunch of films that I I hadn't originally thought of as related. And uh, I, I have to say, I think they, they built a nice little package. Yeah, they really did. I, and I think that when you look at the work of Higgins and you look at kind of what he was doing with his stories, it really it makes sense that these are his films, you know, from Harold and Maude all the way through this. There is a thread. And I, I guess you can say 
there's a little bit of it in Silver Streak. I mean, just like finding people who are outsiders, right? Harold and Maude mm-hmm. are definitely outsiders. In Silver Streak, it's a, that's a trickier one. But I think, you know, you have uh, you know a criminal with um, a Richard Pryor's character. And then you obviously have Gene Wilder, who everybody thinks is a murderer. And he's kind of mm-hmm. on the run trying to prove his innocence. So I guess in that sense, maybe you can see it that, that way. Same thing with foul play. Um, you know, Goldie Hawn's character is kind of the one that nobody believes because, um, it, you know, everything, <laughs> the bad guys keep hiding all the evidence. And Chevy Chase is, you know, he's just kind of out of the department at the time. And so, and, and then, of course, these last uh, few films with uh, 9 to 5 and The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, they're definitely is a a theme that Higgins is building with his storytelling of kind of these outsider types of characters uh, that are are in the bigger films, the stronger ones, that feel like they're trying to stand up for themselves and they're trying to find their place. And Mm -hmm. I think that paired with kind of his clear comedy stylings that he has um, really kind of makes a pretty clear as i watch these definition of what a collins higgins colin higgins film is i i agree with you i mean he's an uh, a fantastic uh writer of dialogue of smart dialogue in the mouths of smart people and uh not just sort of lampooning comedy but really i think intelligent comedy and even when it's silly as we get in some uh, some of the episodes in 9 to 5 it still comes off as as human and i i think that's a really powerful mix and a and a fantastic skill set and it makes me sort of bereft as we wrap up this series wishing that we had a little bit more time with higgins to see where his career would have gone i have no doubt um it, it would have been he would have had something really special to say as he had he lived longer. I wonder if um, his scripts, The Man Who Lost Tuesday, even Washington Girls, the one that was the reunion mm-hmm. vehicle for the nine to five gals. I wonder if those are out there still, like have the studios just kind of put those in drawers and they're not wanting to do anything now or i wonder if somebody actually has kind of controlling interest in them and is would push to actually make some of these older projects of his would love to see what happens of them me too all right man i think we need to do this one uh and take it straight to the mat let's do it let's do it. it's an interesting kind of disappointing end to the series but still it had a lot of uh, moments that worked for me Head on over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we put on our list and we've talked about in this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flickchart, it'll take you straight to this movie in the flickchart library where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas or The Lion in Winter. Oh, it's The Lion in Winter. Yeah, and this this actually is representative of the challenge that I have ranking this movie. <laughs> The best little whorehouse in Texas, or more Colin Higgins, foul play. Foul play for me. Yeah, it's foul play. The best little whorehouse in Texas, or the Thomas Crown Affair, the 1999 remake. I would go with the Thomas Crown Affair. They're both problematic. Uh, I'll go with the Thomas Crown also. All right. Best little whorehouse in Texas, or Fast Company, from our David Cronenberg series, whorehouses for me. Uh, Yes, absolutely. (laughs) The best little whorehouse in Texas or Christmas in Connecticut. I'm going to take Christmas. Oh, Christmas. The best little whorehouse in Texas or Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Probably that's, apes. That's the roughest ending, though. I know. I know. I, I could be swayed. How strongly well, do you feel I, about it? I mean, you know, the Apes franchise will always be more watchable for me. Um, so it's I, not going anywhere. I, would I mean, feel it's still like, going to be there. I know. I know. Um, I, I, I don't want to say apes cause it's, that's such a rough ending. Um, they do it. Let's do it. I'm going to give it to the caution to the wind. Let's give it to the whorehouse. Yeah. Yep. Ain't nothing dirty going on. Best little whorehouse in Texas or the crazies. <laughs> I'm going to go with the crazy whorehouse. Really? I'm, I'm, I'm easy to switch on this one. Well, I, you, you want to twist then, my arm? Would you? Would you please? Right. Whorehouse right. it is. I appreciate that. The best little whorehouse in Texas or the dead zone. I'm going to say the dead zone. Yeah, I'll go with the dead zone. Well, that puts the best little whorehouse in Texas in spot 399 
on our chart. 399 out of 436, that lands a pretty low at an 8% on our chart. Yeah, and that was my problem. Even though I had a good time with this movie, boy, this is a flick chart failure for me. It ended up at, uh, wow, 12.08 out of 14.31. That's a 16%, and uh, it's not great. That's really, that's so interesting because it did the same for me. 35.49 out of 42.80, which is a 17%. I'm really surprised that, uh, that it dropped so low for both of us because it was, I mean, it's fine. It's entertaining. It's just, yeah, just, it didn't quite, stick and i think that's what frustrated me with it i think it's a it's telling that i and i don't i don't want to judge you man but i think i don't think either of us are terribly elegant in how we define why this movie didn't in your words stick with us why it left in my words emptiness for me like i think this is right here this is like algorithmically uh it defines those words like it just did not like i'd rather watch almost anything even though i don't hate this movie yeah it's an odd thing um and it's not like a prostitution thing because like i'm totally fine with watching like i mean Give me uh, what's the uh, why did I totally just blank on it? The Nicolas Cage one where he drinks himself to death and leaving Las Vegas, leaving Las Vegas with uh, hanging out with his prostitute. That one, like uh, you know, uh, I don't know. It, it was great. Pretty woman. I, I yeah. I mean yeah. Me and Andy, we are all on board with prostitutes. <laughs> there's 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 the quote for our next uh, uh, T-shirt. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> the next reel. We're all on board. We're all on board with prostitutes. No, it's just uh, anyhow. It, it it's just, interesting. I, I think it yeah. is a problem the film has of telling a story about kind of you know a character story about some interesting characters and just kind of the bigger story that just it I don't know just it struggled so. Well, if I go by the algorithm, that 1208 should lead to a one star over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. And that is, I think, a, a couple of stars too low. This is a middle of the road film for me. And so I'm going to I can go middle of the road with it and sit right at two and a half. Um, I, I, That's where I landed. Uh, two and a half with a heart. Just kind of feels right. Yeah. yeah. I still gave it heart because it's uh, yeah. like there's enough to enjoy here. But yeah, like you, I'm like, eh, I probably don't need to watch it anytime soon. Uh, well, this has been great, but now that means that we're at the end of our Colin Higgins series and we get to start a new series, Andy. What's the Holy new series? Cow. This is one that you have been pushing for for a while. So we're finally returning to our Guilty Pleasure series. And uh, we're going to be looking at a couple of our Guilty Pleasures, one of mine, which we'll be starting with, Life of the Party. And then yours, of course, Hudson Hawk. I can't hear you, Andy. I'm jumping up and down. <laughs> So excited! <laughs> you sure are. Oh wow! Yeah. So uh, this looks like it, it looks like it's going to be a uh, a really fun series, and it's with great movies. And one of them I haven't even seen. Ugh. <laughs> Super excited about this. Uh, so that's what we start next week. Catch up on your guilty pleasures, everybody. When, when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, Amazon, this is a movie that was made for you. <laughs> we got a couple. We didn't have to dig very far. The, the, there are some juicy ones floating right at the top, skimming the surface, the scummy part right on the surface. Yes, we did. Uh, uh, would, would, would you like me to start or Go. would you like to start? You want me to Go start? Go for it. Sure. Do you talk first? Okay. Uh, mine comes from Carla, uh, who reviewed this movie November 30th, 2018 watched it on a DVD. It's a verified purchase. And Carla says, I didn't like that Dolly Parton played a half-necked lady in it. (laughs) (laughs) Half-necked. So there's that. 
<laughs> Dolly Parton does indeed play a half-necked lady in it. According to Roger Ebert, the rest of her neck was made up in bosom. <laughs> That's right. Who needs all that neck when you can fill it out with bosom? <laughs> you have so much bosom. Uh, what'd you come up with? I had Lennett, who I think speaks to a lot of the Amazon review community, who uh, decided to make the purchase and then realized this says whorehouse. What are the what are, what are my family and friends going to think when they see my purchase? So Lennett, of course, said one star. I need my money back. I have taken my card off this app. I did not purchase this. I don't even know what this is. <laughs> uh huh. Sure, sure you don't. <laughs> Neither does Sheriff Ed Earl. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>